good ministry academy that we ran over there for some ministers. We had more than 30 that came from all across the country, and we were really happy to be able to to uh, just train them. And, and they were excited about it also. The Lord really did move. We had one day where there were a number of people that had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. And God just poured his Holy Spirit out, filled all of them as we prayed on a Wednesday morning. And with all of the ones that, that came, we had a number of uh, ministers, of course, male and female, but we saw uh, some pictures of two of the ladies, one named Miriam, another named Eunice. Uh, two brand new church buildings have gone up in the last nine months from the monies that uh, have been sent from Nebraska. And we've really been excited about that. I know Miriam probably has over 140, 150 people in her churches, a bunch of kids, Eunice also has a, 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 a decent-sized congregation. All of these are rural ministries, but yet the kids and teenagers come from every direction. You know, just not a lot of homes out there, but they make the journey and they walk because they want to be in a place where they hear about Christ. And we had always encouraged the churches, if possible, you know, feed the kids when they come. You know, even if it's nothing but a little bit of porridge, or uh, some kind of soup or something. Kids will get out of bed and come to church and they're going to have a belly field, especially when they live in a world where there's not a whole lot of food and stuff. But the, the testimonies they shared with us during the school, the time we spent with people was very edifying. And I'm always glad when I hear stories of people who persevere despite the difficulties they're facing. They're, they're, they have challenges we don't have. We're grateful for where we're living, and of course, we're privileged to live where we live and as we live, and uh, the, the abundance that we have, we're able to share some of the overflow with them. So it was a, a tremendous meeting. Our Sunday meetings were, were wonderful also. The first Sunday I was there with the uh, Four Square Church, just had beautiful altar service ministering to people that came forward. The second Sunday that we were there, we were at the uh, Assemblies of God Church and again had a great service there. We preached the 8.30 meeting and then we preached the uh, 10.30 service and uh, just, just a lot of good things going on there at Bishop Karani's church. I, I don't know how many young people I probably counted there that were under the age of probably 10 or 11. Might have been 60 of them. But just a whole lot of man, a boatload of teenagers and a whole lot of adults. I think that morning there might have been 700 or so people that were there because even the balcony had folks that were up in there. But just uh, wonderful services. Karani and I were planning on uh, what we could do in the future, the next big meeting, because the last time we did some big meetings were amongst the Maasai tribe. And God really gave us a great time in the Lord with them. But now that he's become the missions director for Kenya AG, he kind of stays on, on the road. I told him that down in WMF, I showed a little video that he sent of an unreached people group that two or three years ago uh, they had discovered. And so we had WMF send a little money to help them with that. Well, they put a school there. Now they're getting ready to send their first set of missionaries from Kenya, I think, to Somalia, he was telling me. And this will be a first for the history of the uh, Kenya Assemblies of God, which which is interesting because as he was telling me about the the budget that they have for what they're doing, that, you know, it's it's a poor church also. Now, they've got nearly forty six hundred churches across that country, the A.G., but you're still dealing with a whole lot of poor people and their missions budget that Karani has for traveling and helping and establishing churches. For the most part, all of that comes from us, you know, and, and, and trying to help them and send in funds to uh, encourage them. So there there have been a lot of churches planted uh, through our partnership and a lot of good things that. Are, are taking place right now. When we got there, of course, Kenya, this season, this is the end of their winter. 
And so the winter time for them is means in the early morning, it's anywhere from 48 degrees to 52 degrees. And then the high for the day normally is about 72 or 73. And so the, the, the Kenyan people over there in weather like that, they don't dress like we do in 72 degree weather. Uh, that's cold for them. So they've got earmuffs on. And they've got scarves wrapped around their neck and they've got big winter coats sitting in the service when it's 72 degrees. And they're sitting there shivering, talking about how cold it is. And of course, I'm in a short sleeve shirt and I'm up there doing this because I feel like it's so hot and they don't even understand where where we're coming from with that. But but God really did bless those folks when we had the graduation at the end of the week. Just one by one, they came up, got their certificates, big smiles on their faces, and they said their lives were changed forever and ever because some of them had never even been in any, any kind of biblical class or any kind of school. And the way we, we run it is the early mornings is kind of like a whole lot of exhortation with me doing three different lessons, at least with me kind of preaching. And I'm talking about Christ. Uh, being the main focal point of a, of a believer's life, helping them to see that before you ever become a good minister, you got to be a good Christian. And then the second thing I'm helping them to see is that as a, as a minister in the pulpit, what is it that we do when we come up here? What's the role? What's the purpose? What's the point of all of the proclamation of the gospel? And so they, they see from the scriptures what Jeremiah's role was, what Moses' role was, what it is that we're to proclaim, what are the essentials of the gospel? Why is it that we never need to be intimidated by a spiritual climate, that God has given us enough power through his word and through the Holy Spirit that we never need stand in any county and talk about how difficult it is and how hard it is because God has given the answer and the answer is his word. And then we tell them how important it is to pray because no minister will ever be bigger than his or her prayer life. If we don't have a relationship with God, communication with God, then we can't expect to have much uh, movement in, in what we're doing for the Lord. Because if God can't move us to talk to him, why should God touch the hearts of families to come hear what we have to say? So there has to be some kind of a relationship with the king in prayer. So we had invited some friends from over near the Uganda border who are part of the apostolic church because we ran this school strictly for the four square and and they were just so touched by everything that we did that they said please come do the school for us so probably next year sometime we'll do it with them probably double the numbers of people that we invited this time because we housed them fed them three times a day and then sent them home and of course that was that cost a good amount of money but we kind of felt like we wanted everybody to eat good and and they I think they performed well they hired a chef for that week I say a chef we know about a Kenyan man lives in the village there and uh, he made all kinds of food for everybody and I think about the only only request I had that went unfulfilled was I was hoping that on graduation day we'd be able to have butcher a goat but we didn't get a goat butchered, but we did get a chance to eat a whole lot of chicken and a whole lot of beef. And, and Pastor probably lost five to seven more pounds again as he was there drinking all that African tea. It just seemed like every time we took a break, they said, you want tea? I said, well, no, I don't think we need any tea today. So that second break, they said, you've got to take tea with us. So we kept taking tea. I think I filled up with that more so than I did with the food. But it was fun, and it's always a good time to be there. And, and Tiffany, of course, always enjoys herself. The staff at the guest house where we stay, they just absolutely adore her. They put up with me, but they, 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 they do love her. We had a, a two nights where Kenny had their, their young people's talent show or contest. So kids from all over the country, 20,000 of them came to Mwega where we were 
And I had no idea. I'd, I'd never scheduled this had I known 20,000 kids. Oh, excuse me, 100,000 kids from all across Kenya had come. So we ended up with about 35 or 40 of them in the place where we were. And, and once they realized they were Americans in there, then, you know, they're running around in the middle of the night, banging on the door, running. And then come back, bang on the door, they're running again. But uh, Tiffany handled that fairly well. She 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 didn't lose her religion quite as often as I did, but but it did work out well. So thank you for your prayers. And uh, like I said, we'll be doing this again. That the power of God really was real in that place. Those prayer meetings were wonderful. Just just listening to them talk to God. Thirty minutes at the beginning of the school, thirty minutes at the end of the day, was just impressive. And you you could see how passionate everybody was by the time. We came to the end. Okay, let's let's open our Bibles this evening. Let's go to Ephesians chapter four. I want to teach uh, this evening, possibly a little bit longer, about five kinds or five types of ministers. And I want you to look at what in Ephesians four and eleven is often called the fivefold ministry. And let's see how this began why they were given, what are their uses in the body of Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse number 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we want you to see initially that there is a distribution made in portions of the body of Christ, and these gifts come from the king. Verse 8. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, of course, this is a quotation from an Old Testament psalm. And let's remind ourselves of the story of Abraham when he went and rescued Lot. He spoiled the kings, that is to say, he defeated them, he conquered them, he took their belongings. And then with that uh, uh, subjection of those people, then what he had, he then divided that amongst the people with him. So Lot received what he needed, and then the people who were captive were then set free. And of course, we know that Abraham was a man that after his battles, he went to Melchizedek and gave unto the Lord. So with with Jesus spoiling the powers and principalities, as it says in Colossians and having received all power unto himself, he now then is sharing power. So the scripture says, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So in verse number eight, the one who ascended up on high, he's the one that gave gifts to men. You can't give what you don't possess. And he's in possession of all the gifts. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Now, what is what are we talking about the lower parts of the earth? Well, he came from heaven to earth, you know, in order to redeem man. This is what we're talking about. Uh, Jesus says to uh, the ones in the gospel of John, you're going to see heaven open, angels ascending and descending upon the uh, son of man. Now, for, for those who use this verse to talk about Jesus going down into hell and between his death and his resurrection and, and all of that, that, that I'm not going to argue with anybody. All I'll say about that is when Peter says Jesus made an announcement to those who were prisoners uh, down in Hades or hell, there's nothing in that announcement that says that you folks are leaving here. If he makes an announcement, it's an announcement of his victory and his power and his position. But nobody came out of there for sure because hell doesn't have an exit sign for anybody. 
But but this, I believe, talks about him coming from heaven down into this earth realm in order to perform the scheme of redemption for us. So then verse 10, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. And you'll see that in chapter one and in chapter two, where Jesus is seated in heavenly places far above all power and principality. And then in chapter two, you can see in verse six, he's raised us up also to be seated in heavenly places with him. Well, if if that is the case and he's seated far above all problems and circumstances and situations and he's the head and we're the body, then he has to be able to control the body and minister to the body and through the body. And one of the ways he does that is through the kinds of ministers that he gives in the body of Christ. So verse 11 tells us, number one, he gave some apostles. Number two, he gave some prophets. Thirdly, he gave some evangelists. And then fourthly, we've got pastors. And then the fifth group here mentioned are teachers. Well, some people try to combine the pastors and teachers, but you can combine them if you want. But but still, I've met a whole lot of pastors that can't teach. And I've met plenty of teachers who are not pastors. So we're, we're dealing with five different manifestations of the ministry of Christ that he had when he was here on planet Earth. How do we know that Jesus was an apostle? Because Hebrew says he was the high priest and apostle of our profession. How do we know Jesus was a prophet? Because the Bible says that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. How do we know that he was an evangelist? Because he said, I must go and proclaim the good news to those that are lost, the lost sheep of Israel. How do we know that he was a pastor? Because John says he was a good shepherd. How do we know he's a teacher? Because Nicodemus came to him at night and said, we know you're a teacher sent from God. See, So five ministries Jesus himself fulfilled. And with those five ministries, he then is able to select through the power of the Holy Spirit who in the body of Christ he wants to operate and function in these particular five ministries. And then verses 12, 13 and 14 tell us why we have these ministries. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So in those three verses there you essentially have what is the commission of the five ministries that the Lord has given to the body of Christ. And of course, the the upshot or the outcome of all of this is that in verse 14, we won't be like children, but that in verse 15, we'll speak the truth in love and grow up in him. So the ministry of an apostle, what is that? Well, the, the Greek word, of course, we know means a person that is sent. We understand that sent. And in our English language, we have often used the word missionary because in Latin, the equivalent of the Greek word for apostolos, it would be missio, which means to send, one that is sent. That essentially is what a missionary is supposed to be. But I I hasten to say very quickly, there are plenty of people that are on the mission field and plenty of people who are missionaries that I don't believe ever were sent by God. But I do want you to know that when we're talking about a, a five fold ministry or kind of apostle, we're only talking about people sent by God. Now, let's let's look at this. Uh, historically and see how this begins. Let's go to Luke chapter number six. And I want you to see how Jesus chose the 12 apostles. Luke chapter number six. We already understand that Jesus has assembled 
some apostles by walking back and forth along the shores of Galilee, telling people to follow him. And he's told some people who didn't even become apostles to also come and follow him. In Luke chapter six, notice in verse 13, he has called his disciples and of them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. So the the group of people that assembled to him initially were all his followers or disciples. But from that group, he chose 12 to be with him that they might be apostles. Now, you find the same language in Mark chapter three, where it tells us he appointed them to give them power to heal the sick, to cast out devils, to anoint people with oil. And I, I emphasize this because in verse 13, I want you to see that before anybody became an apostle, they were a disciple. That's where you begin. Everybody begins at ground level number one. Everybody begins in baby class. Everybody begins with the initial relationship with God. And once you become a follower of the Lord and start walking with him, it's out of that relationship that God calls you to be other things. He calls you to do other things. But they did not become apostles the day that he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So with this big group of disciples, he then chose 12, as you can see in verse 13 and verses 14, 15 and 16 gives you the names of them. And you can see Judas was one of them. So you got 12. You've got brothers involved here, James and John. You've got Andrew and Peter. In verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of the disciples and a great multitude out of all Judea, Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for there went virtue out of him and he healed them all. So they immediately started learning what it was that Jesus did, how it is that Jesus ministered. So when you get to the book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke's story of the beginnings of Christ and the church, you can see they just continued to do what he taught them to do. That's what they did. So 12 apostles, what we have, book of Revelation describes them as 12 apostles of the lamb, 12 of the lamb. And and these were the foundational stones in the church. These were the men that walked with Jesus. These were the men that heard Jesus. These were the ones specifically commissioned by the king. Now, let's go to Acts chapter one. Well, Judas, of course, betrayed the Lord. And in chapter one, they needed to figure out who they were going to use to take the place of Judas because they obviously felt like they needed to fulfill that number 12. And you can see what the uh, qualifications were. They said in verse 16 of Acts chapter one, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So Judas actions were prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. It's according to what Peter is saying here on the day where he's ministering to the people. Verse 17. So Judas was numbered with us and he obtained part of this ministry. So as far as Peter was concerned, Judas was a part of the apostolic ministry, had the apostolic call on his life and certainly walked in the anointing of God. But because of this man's iniquity, you can see in verse 18, he fell headlong, burst asunder because he you know, took his own life. And it was known all by the people living in Jerusalem. And in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate. Let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another man take. So that tells you that just because one person passes away doesn't mean that office remains empty. God finds somebody else to fulfill that call. God put somebody else in a position to do that. And any church that's had a pastor, if the pastor died, usually there's somebody else comes along, and starts ministering in that church. Things don't stop. It's like what John Wesley said one time. Uh, God buries the workmen, but the work carries on. It never stops. So when we think of these five types of ministries, they are still in planet Earth, have been here since the institution of the church and will be here until the end of the age. 
Nothing's going to change. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter who tries to vote on them and say we don't believe in them. Whether you believe in them or not, it doesn't matter. It's still going to be here. You just may not acknowledge them. You may not recognize them. You may not even use the designation. But it doesn't change the fact that God still has them in the body of Christ. So then here are the qualifications. Said verse 21. We need of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us from the time of John the Baptist until the day that he was taken up from us. Must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they had two that were qualified, but only one was chosen. So that tells you that there were plenty of people alive at this time who had been with Jesus from the time he started his ministry. But just because you had been part of the ministry and you had been there with them from the beginning, that did not mean you were an apostle. Just because you had affiliation, just because you knew them. So they prayed and verse 24, here's what they said. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which of these two you've chosen. And uh, that they may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression failed. Now, that, that's an inter- interesting statement because people seem to forget that you can fall from the ministry you had. That's what it said. It said Judas by his transgression didn't say God ordained for him to fall. It said by his own sin, his own iniquity, his own trespass, he was removed from the ministry, just like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden because of a choice. You make a choice to go against God and you may separate yourself from the very ministry God gave to you. And there won't be anybody else to blame but yourselves. So they cast their lots or gave forth their lots in verse 26. And the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered. With the 11. So the number is 12 again. Now, here's a man chosen of the two mentioned in verse 23. Historically, you don't hear anything about Barsabas again. But then you have Matthias, who's one of the apostles. But I I don't know anything about a gospel according to Matthias. And, And none of you have probably read a gospel according to Matthias. But he was an apostle just like the rest of them. Yeah, just like the rest of them. He knew Christ. He had walked with them. Now, I'm I'm emphasizing this because I want you to see that the role that the first 12 had, Peter all the way through Judas, was unique. They, They had a unique position because they were specifically chosen by Jesus to be those 12 apostles. But now Jesus has ascended to heaven. Matthias has now been selected to take Judas's place. He's an apostle also accepted into that group, but yet he didn't receive his commission directly from Jesus. Nevertheless, the 11 who appointed him and selected him and the lot showed that he was the one that was chosen. They believed he was an apostle on equal standing with them. That's what they believed. And 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 you can see verse 26. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. So those 12, those 13, there just never would have been and certainly will never be any apostles that have known Jesus personally that are alive today like that. Impossible. Nobody like that at all. However, if you go with me now to Acts chapter nine, I'll show you a man by the name of Saul. Who was a persecutor of the church. And we're going to look at a number of scriptures and I want you to follow me. And you can see in Acts chapter nine, looking at the first 17, 18 verses, here is how he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saved on the road going to Damascus. And after he saved, he ends up going his own direction for a little while. But If you notice what it says in chapter nine, in verse 10, the Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision in verse 11. He said, go into the street called straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now, why did God send Ananias to Paul? Well, because of verse 15 and 16. Go your way. 
He is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name. Say, God never told Ananias that Saul was going to be an apostle. He just told him he's going to have a strong ministry and he's going to have a ministry that's going to touch a whole lot of people. Well, Saul goes his own direction. Barnabas goes and gets Saul, introduces him to the elders and the apostles that are there in Jerusalem, and they accept him into their ranks, not as an apostle, but as a believer who has come to know Jesus, who has a relationship. And you remember the Bible says when he first started coming, going in and out of the city with the believers, they were afraid. They thought he might have been a secret persecutor coming in to infiltrate the church. But when everybody kind of went their own separate directions, Saul went back to the area of Tarsus and places like that. And eventually Barnabas went and got him and brought him. And you can turn to Acts chapter 11 now. And you can see in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus and he got Saul and he brought Saul in verse 26 to the church at Antioch. And for a whole year, they were there fellowshipping and the people were first called Christians in Antioch. That's because Barnabas went and got Saul. So you can see the, the, the development, the growth and the progression of Christ in the life of Saul. And by the time you get to chapter 13, verse one, you can see where it says that the church in Antioch, there was in that church prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius, the Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch and Saul. So notice now at this point, Saul is either a prophet or a teacher or a prophet and a teacher. And he's in the church in Antioch. But he began as a Christian. He started his first steps as a man that met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Well, Paul wasn't one of the original 12, but he's an apostle. And, and, and he wrote a whole lot of letters. And, and fortunately for us, two thirds of the New Testament basically come from his hand. And he had a revelation of Christ. And we're grateful for that. But yet Paul had a team and Paul had several people that labored with him like Timothy. You remember when he picked up Timothy in chapter 16, he had a good report. Paul discipled him. Titus. He was another one that was like that. But have you ever realized in your study of the New Testament that Timothy, Titus and even Silas themselves were called eventually apostles? Now, it's 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 quite something to, to see when you look at it in the scriptures. And I want to I want to show this to you. But let's let's go to Second Corinthians, chapter eight. Now, Second Corinthians, chapter eight. Yeah. Second Corinthians chapter eight and towards the end of the chapter. Verse twenty two and twenty three. Now, all I'm doing right now is laying a foundation to show you that there are different people in the body of Christ in the first century church that had the designation apostles. So second Corinthians eight, verse twenty two. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you, whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my helper and fellow helper or partner concerning you or our brethren be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Now, it's interesting here in this English, you have the word messengers of the churches, but the Greek word is apostles. They are apostles talking about Titus. And other people, they are apostles. Now, you may you may ask then what are the signs of an apostle? Because we run into this all the time with people who have this designation and people are constantly talking about a, a restoration of apostles as if they went away. They didn't go anywhere. They've been in the body of Christ since the beginning, first Corinthians twelve twenty eight. that's what it said. For God hath established some in the church, first apostles and then so on and, and, and all these other things. But the problem is you haven't always had people that wanted to use these des designations because there were a lot of people taught for centuries that when the last apostle died, that they ceased being. That's not so. I'm showing you that here. Titus is called an apostle. 
And 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 then I could take you to first Thessalonians two verse number six and show you where Silas and Timothy and Titus again are all called apostles. But my point is to show you you didn't have to write a book in the Bible to be called an apostle. Because there's some people that say, well, you know, there can't be any apostle because we don't have anybody else writing any books and, and, and we're not in the first century. Well, if that's the case, we can't have any pastors. Because we don't have any first century pastors anymore. We don't have any shepherds on planet Earth today that knew the people that walked with Jesus. The role apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist and teacher doesn't have anything to do with whether or not somebody writes a book. It has everything to do with a gift that's been given to them by the measure of Christ. It's a ministry that is given to people to perform. Now, Second Corinthians 12, look at verse number 12. Here's what Paul says. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So that right there is is what I'm always looking for. If I start hearing people run around calling themselves an apostle and believe me when I tell you, I run into them all the time. I run into him all the time. I, I, I had a man one time told me he was an apostle of finance. I said, yeah, we've got a couple of those. We call them treasurers. Yeah, that's, that's what he called himself. Well, that is not what this is talking about. No. An apostle is someone who is sent forth by God and God confirms the ministry that they have. Well, then what do they do? The, the 12 apostles of Jesus laid the foundation of the gospel that was preached upon which all the body of Christ has grown up. What was Paul's ministry to take the gospel to the nations, to preach the gospel to different people. Peter and Paul were both apostles. Peter walked with Jesus. Paul didn't, but Paul had a vision of Jesus. Yet both of them had the same message, but were sent to different people. But to the different people they went and the power of God was in evidence through what they did. So a person who's called to apostleship and a person that's called to be an apostle is going to have the presence of God at work in their life. And according to verse 12 here in patience and signs and wonders. So if you are talking to someone who says, look, I'm an apostle of God and you say, I don't believe it. And they get all angry and offended. You know, they're not patient. Yeah, you know, they're not patient. Yeah. Let me give you one more on this. Go to First Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter two, just to reiterate, there never will be another group of people in the ministry ever equivalent to the people that walk with Jesus. But there will certainly always be people who like Titus, like Timothy, like Silas who are going to be called to do the kind of ministry of apostleship that's mentioned here in the book, even if they never write an epistle. Now, you don't you don't have to like the title. You don't even have to call anybody that. But I'm, I'm just telling you, this is what we have in the book here. First Thessalonians two. This, this is Paul. Now, listen to verse five. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of ourselves, when we might have been burdensome as the what's the next word? Apostles of Christ. Now, he said we. So that's that's a plural. We. So who is he talking about? Go back to chapter one and look at the first sentence of verse number one. Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. So so I've already shown you so far that that we have at least 16 or 17 and even more uh, people in the New Testament that are called apostles. Five or six of them outside of the group of the 12 that walked with Jesus. But I've also shown you that Second Corinthians 12 and 12 makes it very plain. If somebody's going to walk with God and, and be in ministry like that, it's going to have to be a supernatural thing. So the next one that is mentioned in Ephesians 4 is talking about the role of a prophet. Now, that's that's an interesting ministry. You don't have in the Bible a cookie cutter mold or cast for that particular ministry. Abraham is called a prophet. David's called a prophet. Isaiah is called a prophet. Moses is called a prophet. Miriam 
is a prophetess. Anna is a prophetess. All of them had different ministries. Joseph is considered a prophet. He interpreted dreams. Daniel is considered a prophet. He had dreams. Zechariah is considered a prophet. He had dreams. Okay. Elisha, Elijah are considered prophets. They did great miracles. John the Baptist is considered a prophet. And the Bible says he did no miracle. He did no miracle. That's what the Bible says. So then what is a prophet? How do you describe a person who is a prophet? A prophet is someone, (coughs) excuse me, someone who being called of God is going to be a spokesperson for the king. That's what you have in the Bible. They they declare the mind of God, the will of God. And sometimes they have foresight, but they certainly have insight. They can see things spiritually and can declare what it is that they see. But they definitely are are able to to minister the things that God reveals to them. Now, it could come to them in a parable. It could come to them in a vision or a dream. However, it comes to them, they can minister it. And God may supernaturally confirm what they're saying, but it'll all be different. I mean, if we had somebody like Elijah on the planet today saying things like, if I'm truly a man of God, let fire come down and burn all of you to death. You'd be claiming it's of the devil. You'd be saying that's not God. Because remember, James and John tried that. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? And the Lord said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. See, totally different dispensational, totally different time frame. However, Agabus in the book of Acts was a prophet and he did two things in the book of Acts. Number one, he prophesied about a famine that was coming that did come in the days of Claudius. Then the second thing he did was much more of a physical illustration. He went to Paul, asked for Paul's girdle or his belt, took the belt off, tied up his hands and says, so shall the man that owns this belt be bound. Thus saith the Lord. And that's what happened when he went to Jerusalem. So sometimes there's a physical thing. Uh, prophets are, are different. Remember the one prophet who uh, he was told to draw a map on the ground? He did that. Remember the one prophet who told the man to come and he gave him an arrow and he said, now take the arrow and beat it, beat it on the ground. The man beat it only three times. He says, you should have beat it several times, made sure that the, the opposition would be utterly destroyed. There's the one man who's a prophet who who had to dig through a wall. And in the middle of the night, the Bible says he had to start pulling furniture from one side of the of the, the uh, property through the hole in the wall to the other side. So that if anybody asked him, what in the world are you doing? He could say, God is moving Israel from here into captivity and I'm illustrating it by what I'm doing. Yeah. That's that, that that happened. Yeah. And and let's not forget one time the prophet had to lay on one side of his body for a number of months. Then another time on another side of his body. And for you that have beards, he had to, he had to cut his cut half of his beard off one time or a third of it off and then burn it in the fire because God told him. So people like this, they weren't always what we would think of as normal. They were quite different with some of the things that they did. <clears throat> now, now, having said that, Anna was a prophetess. She saw the day that the Messiah was coming. And when he got here, God gave her a word. She knew that. So we've got the, these people in the New Testament that certainly had that ministry. Paul traveled, you recall, with Silas after he split up with Barnabas. And the Bible says that Silas and his friend were prophets. In the churches and they exhorted the people. So a prophet's going to have a gift of prophecy. First Corinthians 14 tells us what that gift does. It's for edification, exhortation and comfort. Now, what is edification? That means to build up something. Well, that's what Jeremiah's ministry was. But his was also to root out, tear down and build up. So a a true prophet of God, as the scripture says, if they prophesy in your midst, people will know God is in the midst of you. They want to fall down on their faces and know God is here in our midst. That's when it's true. And if if you understand that, 
and you have the reality of what's right when you come in contact with people who call themselves prophets and it's not true, then you'll be able to recognize what's false. You'll be able to sense immediately that this doesn't have anything, anything to do with, with, with God. So again, in my travels, I run into a whole lot of people that, that want to be called apostles and, and prophets. And I'm just looking. I'm always watching. Second Corinthians 12 and 12. Do I see this? Do I hear this in their ministry? Typically, I don't. And when people are calling themselves prophets, I'm, I'm watching and I'm just paying attention to, to what kind of sense of God I get in the presence of a meeting because uh, folks will say, well, you know, people don't have a problem with people using the term teacher. And, and since you use teacher and shepherd, we should be able to use prophet and apostle. You can use whatever label you want. I'm just saying whatever you advertise, make sure you can deliver yeah. If you're going to drive around with a van that says uh, Beaver's Plumbing. OK, know, know how to plumb. OK, know how to plumb if somebody calls you to the house. If you're, if you're going to ride, ride around and, and it says uh, Neff Computer Repair, then we need to know how to repair computers. But but too very often we, we have the advertisements that, that people have and they use them, but they don't necessarily have the same equipment. So you can take an empty can and you can take the label peaches and, and scrape it right on off. And you can put apples on there, but changing the label doesn't change what's in the can. If God has called someone to be an apostle, if he's called someone to be a prophet, then that ministry is going to be in them, whether other people believe it or not. And there will be confirmation of the move of God in the midst of their life. And there will be biblical illustration in here because there will be a love for God's word. God doesn't call us to spend our time just talking about revelations that we have privately in our closet. He wants you to teach the book, reveal the book, preach the book, manifest the book, explain the book. Because without the book, our ministries don't matter. Who can be a pastor without a Bible? And why would anybody want to be a prophet so-called without a Bible? You know, like one lady I had, she was telling me that there was a, a gentleman who was a prophet and he was calling himself a prophet. And he wanted to give them, her and her husband, some private counsel and all this kind of a thing. And I was just sitting there just shaking my head. And, and, and she said, well, he, he, he felt like. He, he wanted us to understand how to interpret dreams. So he had a book, you know, he's going to show us what all these symbols are, things like that. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, he, he wanted us to pay him so many dollars. And I said, well, did you give him the money? He said, no. He said, what happened then? So he got angry and upset. He said, look, I, I, I've got to make a living, too. Well, can you imagine Hosea or somebody called of God saying to the children of Israel, I've got to make a living off of what I'm doing? If God's called you to do something, then you do it. God take care of you. But if, if you have to exploit what you believe is a gift in order to receive funds from people, then I'm going to wonder whether or not you really have a gift. Yeah, you can go to an insurance agency and they can give you a set of figures that show if you've got 500 people in front of you, at least probably 20 of them going to have diabetes. And you can stand up there in front of all of them and say, look, I'm telling you right now, by the word of God, there are 20 people in here who got diabetes. And if you stand up, you'll be healed. You don't need you don't need a gift for that. But I can tell you this. If you're moving in God and God does say that and 20 people stand up, God will heal 20 people if it's God. But if they go through all of that and nobody's healed, then, you know, it wasn't God anyhow, because God doesn't play with anybody's emotions. And he certainly won't tease you when it comes to that. So the apostle prophet. Let's look at what else we have here. Verse 11 of he of Ephesians four. We have some evangelists. Now, that's good news. That's what that is dealing with. The evangelist, someone who brings good news. Turn to Acts chapter eight. Now, here's your one example post Calvary of someone we know is called an event. Excuse me, an evangelist. And this is Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse number 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. 
And people with one accord gave heed unto those which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many were taken with palsies that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Now, you may say, well, pastor, where does it say he was an evangelist? Well, if you were to go to the end of the book of Acts, you'd find out that Paul, in his journey, he stopped to visit Philip, who was an evangelist. The Bible says, and he had daughters that prophesied, four daughters that prophesied. Philip was an evangelist. So here's your example of what the ministry of an evangelist actually is. This is the biblical ministry of an evangelist. We 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 tend to take Billy Graham is our only example of an evangelist. I think Billy Graham had an excellent ministry. I think he preached to millions of people, saw a whole lot of people come to Christ, but Billy Graham didn't have any of this. I don't even know if Billy Graham believed in this. But whether he believed in it or not, here's what's in the Bible. Here's the example of what an evangelist is supposed to do who's sent out uh, by the Lord. They preach Christ, and there should be the expectation that there'll be some considerable uh, signs and supernatural things that that follow. Now, I will say this, having read a number of biographies of of, of Billy, Billy Graham, he, he did have some supernatural things happening in his life and ministry. There's no doubt about that. He, he had a number of significant things. Most people don't realize when Billy Graham started preaching and really got going down in Florida at the Florida Bible Institute, which was a fundamentalist Baptist place. Some of his closest friends and mentors were Christian missionary and alliance people and Pentecostal pastors. And, and he preached a gospel that even though he didn't pray for the sick in masses with his group, he still had meetings abroad, like in India and places like that, where testimonies of healings were being given from him just preaching the gospel. See, but he never he never styled himself like an Oral Roberts or somebody like that who had a ministry comparable to his in, in fame. And in and in in numbers when they were holding rallies overseas. So again, in Acts chapter eight, notice uh, verse six again. Philip spake. They were hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So baptism in water. Should follow the work of an evangelist or people are gathering harvest and folks are getting saved. It doesn't say you got to take them through a 12 week membership class either. Get them saved. Get them in the water. Oh, yeah. Get them in the water before they start trying to backslide. <laughs> get, them, get them in that water. Let them give evident testimony of what the king is doing in their life. Then Simon himself also believed when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Yeah. So a man that was a sorcerer. Walked away from witchcraft, started walking with the Lord, but didn't have a mind entirely renewed by the power of God yet, just yet. And so when Peter came, Peter had to rebuke him because he thought he could purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm trying to emphasize that an evangelist has a, has a role of spreading the good news. And, and there are different kinds of evangelists. They all share the good news of Jesus, but... Let me give it to you this way. Philip did all of this for the most part outdoors. There were no church meetings. He did this outdoors. And there are people who feel called to preach outdoors. Street evangelists, you know, because I've heard I've had conversations with pastors that get angry about some of these street evangelists. They say, I don't know why they have to go out there and preach like they preach. They ought to just get into a church and have a revival. Well, Philip didn't do that. Philip preached outside. These people who go on on the uh, campuses and they preach in the uh, what they call the free speech areas of the campuses. And, and they're surrounded by sinners that are spitting on them and throwing rocks at them and abusing them. And, and, and people are laughing at them and mocking them. But yet they're standing there in the midst of that circle, preaching the gospel to all those young people, telling them that Jesus loves them, that in their sin, they're lost and that they need a savior. And, and people say, well, I, I just don't see the benefit of all of that. Of course you don't. You're not an evangelist. But if that's your heart, see, 
If your heart is to reach people, to go where people are and to get outside of a comfort zone that just says it has to happen inside of a church or it's not supposed to happen at all, then you'll never appreciate the ministry of somebody like Philip because out where the people are is where you start seeing these things here in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all the way down through 12. Yeah, that's where you have it. Now, there have always been evangelists in... uh, the American church that have held revivals, as we call them, or protracted meetings, evangelistic campaigns. And that goes back to the days of uh, the frontier preachers with Francis Asbury, the first American bishop of the Methodist church who rode horseback, telling folks all about the king, as well as some of uh, the early holiness uh, preachers from the Nazarene church in the 19th century. But with the Azusa outpouring in Los Angeles back around 1967-89, from there you had the bulk of your full gospel denominations. And, and even now, the, the only ones who really still have revivals in churches would be your full gospel churches, probably your Baptist churches, occasionally some Methodist churches. Presbyterian churches have never really been known for revival since the days of Finney because they turned away from Finney. And I've never heard of a history of revivalism or revival meetings in Lutheran churches, Episcopalian churches, not to say they haven't had revivals. But I'm talking about people who feel called to go from church to church and hold meetings and preach the gospel. So for a long time, America has had people that have done just that. And back in the 50s, coming all the way up until the 90s, people start a revival on the Sunday night. That thing might go nine weeks. Yeah. Jerry B. Walker used to be a popular preacher out of Sugar Sugarland, Texas, I believe it was. I mean, he'd preach revivals that would go sometimes 15 weeks every night. Preaching the gospel, multitudes of people saved with the same kind of stories and testimonies that we have right here in Acts chapter 8. So the role of an evangelist is to preach Christ, to expect God to do wonderful things. He doesn't know what God's going to do. But usually when an evangelist comes to a fellowship, if it goes the way it should go, it should end in joy. And happiness and a time of refreshing and the the loss of the role of the evangelist in the last 30 years has been to the detriment of the church. When I first started preaching in the the mid 80s, I knew a whole lot of people traveled in vans and with buses and trailers. And all they did was travel full time and preach the gospel. And now I still know a lot of people who do that. But the the majority of them are holding meetings in the South across the Bible Belt because it's just not the same up up north here. I I don't know how in the world a church up here would even be able to go uh, six weeks in a revival because you'd have to ask the coaches for permission to get the the students to church, you see, and and the superintendents and all these these folks. But when when revival And by revival, I mean a time of refreshing comes to a church. What happens is people want to continue to come and experience the presence of God. And if you have somebody who can proclaim the gospel and share the good news of Jesus Christ, and they can do it in a powerful way with the help of the Holy Ghost, then people start inviting friends. They start inviting family members. And one by one, people start giving their hearts to the Lord. There are no mechanics involved with this. You don't have to put on, make anything up. The presence of God is so real. You'll find people sometimes they'll be crying out because of their sins wanting to become Christians immediately. Yeah, nothing, nothing faked about this. Just knowing God, and, and that's the beauty of it. So in the end, I'll tell you, uh, just with the turn we've seen uh, where we have had 
maybe not so many traveling evangelists like we once had across this nation, even though we still do have many. Believe me when I tell you, we've also seen a rise in the number of people holding mass soul winning crusades outdoors around the world where you get thousands of people together in open fields and people preach the gospel Souls are saved. They're praying one big general prayer for God to heal and touch people. And multitudes of folks are claiming God has ministered to them physically and made them whole. All I'm saying to you is Ephesians 4 and 11 says the one that ascended gave gifts unto men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, Pastors and teachers will work on the pastors and teachers next time. But you can see that those three ministries are going to be in the body of Christ. They're not going anywhere. And it doesn't matter what anybody says. They can say we just don't feel like we need them. Then you don't need them. But but the body of Christ that Jesus established, the church, he said he's building. They're going to need him as long as they're here on planet Earth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting in your body these particular gifts and we're ever so grateful that you have confirmed your ministries through these individuals throughout the history of the church whether or not people have always recognized the gifts you've given we're grateful that they've always been here and they're here today And I pray, God, you continue to lead and guide all of us through the word as we look and see what it says. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.